WPSL Port St. Lucie. And now it is time for We Are Just Christians, live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here are your hosts, Mike Schmidt and Gary Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, and welcome to We Are Just Christians. Thanks for tuning in to the show this morning. We really appreciate it. Hope you can tune in again uh, every week that we're on, which is 10 o'clock. Well, Gary, let me start over again. I hope you can tune in, tune in again at 9 o'clock every Sunday morning for the show. Uh, and uh, we really appreciate you doing that. We Are Just Christians is a live call-in show. I'll give you the numbers in just a moment. My name is Mike Schmidt. I'm the preacher and one of the elders here at the Church of Christ on Savannah Boulevard. And you just heard me mention Gary Jones. How you doing, Gary? I'm doing fine this morning, Mike. Good. Gary's the other elder here. And so we bring this show to, to you to introduce the idea of being just a Christian here in this area, instead of being part of some denomination, and uh, for people that even aren't religious, to give them an alternative, as it were, to modern denominationalism and all of the things that go along with that, to get back just to the Bible. So we're we're not going to defend modern churches as such. We're going to defend what the Scriptures have to say. And we're going to point you in that direction. We're going to try to pattern this local church that we're a part of here after what we can find in the Bible pattern of how churches ought to operate and 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 maybe just as importantly, how we personally ought to be living as Christians, what, it, what the Bible says for us to do morally and spiritually in every other way. We're going to point ourselves back to that. And so when you call the show with whatever comment or question you have, it's going to be our attempt to take a look at what the Bible says about whatever subject it is, and then, um, you know, expand upon that through what through what the scriptures say. So we'll give you some scriptures to look up. You can take a look at what they say, and you can make up your mind about that. You can reach We Are Just Christians uh, by the regular WPSL call-in number, which is 772-340-1590, 772-340-1590. Is the regular call-in number for WPSL, and we'll put you right through here uh, on the air. The show is not—we're not going to embarrass you or anything like that. Feel free to call in. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. Feel free to call in. It's mostly about learning and us having a conversation. If you want to ask a question, make a comment. I, I don't care if you believe in God or religion or not. If something's on your mind or you want to get something off your chest about that, call in, and we'll have a conversation about that. And then you can also reach us by text message. Uh, two text numbers. One of them is mine, Mike, 772-260-6120, 772-260-6120. A lot of people like to uh, text the show because of for various reasons. We're okay with that. We'll, we can even respond to text during the week uh, if you want to text us any, at any time. Uh, we'd be glad to take your text and, and comment upon that. And then the other text number is Gary Jones's text number, 772-260-6220, very similar to mine, 772-260-6220 is the other text number, and we would be glad to um, <clears throat> to talk with you at any time. Just give, text one of those two numbers. And we have a phone call. Uh, um Gary, we're off the bat this morning. Are you there, Jerry? Uh, good morning, gentlemen. I was wondering about the uh, proverb or parable about uh, David and Goliath. 
uh, when they refer to the uh, uh, house of David and the star of David, are they are referring to this person in the Bible, David, who slew Goliath? I'd like to listen to all four. Uh, Mike, if I'll be okay. Okay, that'd be fine. Um, that'd be fine. Well, it, it, that's one of the great stories. I wouldn't call it a parable, but uh, in the Bible is the story of David and Goliath. And, uh, you know, when I say uh, story, uh, sometimes in the way we use that word in modern English, it's presented as actual history. Yeah, it is. It's it's actually what in the Bible is presented as actually historical events. A story sometimes, even though it doesn't necessarily mean this, sometimes the way we use it in modern English means something that's made up. So a person tells, well, when I was a kid, Southern home, you know, you tell a story, you're telling stories means you're making stuff up. Uh, but that's not what we mean by the stories in the Bible. By story, I mean a narrative of what happened uh, between David and Goliath. And he, and then Jerry also wants to know, I hope he, I, I kind of jotted them down. And I appreciate the question and the call very much, but I kind of jotted down the other two things there, the the house of David and the star of David. So we can talk about those uh, if you'd like, Gary, in some particular order. I, I would I don't have it right in front of me, but I, I would say this for for a long, long time, modern, more. Uh, well, they're really secular Bible scholars. They're people that really don't believe in the text of the Bible or in, you know, oftentimes in God who are, have taken over the seminaries and some of the other uh, research institutions in the, in the 1900s and the 2000s. They, they didn't even believe that a person like David ever existed. They said the Bible made up this entire episode or whole perso- persona of David especially in being a king. They said, oh, well, no, that didn't happen at that time. Uh, those people weren't that advanced. We don't have any evidence of David. So he's all made up. This central figure in the history of Israel and in the prophecies about Christ is all, according to many people, uh, was made up. And it's like a lot of other things. If you just have confidence that the Bible is correct, you will be proven to be right over time. And so it wasn't that many years ago, I'm going to say 15 years ago, that they found artifacts in in the, the northern part of Palestine. Another foreign king wrote about tr- conquering or laying siege to the house of David. So there you go. Not only that, that re- the importance of that inscription that they found, up in Syria, I believe it was, and I have to. I could look this up here, but I haven't done so so far. But um, Gary's looking something else up. But any any event, I was, I, look, could, I was looking up all the uses of the House of David. Yes, and you see, it's all throughout right. the Old Testament and some of the New, especially in the Book of Acts. But but you'll see that um, uh, what it shows is that not only was David a real person, but the other people kingdoms around him considered him to be the beginning of a dynasty of kings, the house of David. That's what it means by that, a dynasty or a succession of kings uh, after him. And God said in 2 Samuel 7 that he would build David a house and establish his kingdom forever. Now, of course, we know from the book of Acts that that establishing of David's house is the establishment of Christ's kingdom because Christ came and sat on, is now sitting on David's throne. But um, archaeology has now proven 
that David was a real historical figure and that he was the beginning of a line of kings. And we believe prophetically ending in Jesus Christ, who is David's son forever. In the fulfillment of, in the, fulfillment of the prophecies about the house of David, not only an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly spiritual kingdom that we now know of as the church and on, in, on into the future. So uh, to take the second question first, yes, there is a house of David. It's the line of kings that flows from David and his descendants. Uh, at one time, the first 40 years of that kingdom, when David was alive, and so, oh, I shouldn't say that, the first, um, the, there were three kings uh, in Israel, three main parts of the kingdom, of a united kingdom. One was under Saul, who was king for 40 years. David took over then, to make a long story short, for 40 years. His son Solomon ruled for 40 years in Jerusalem. And so you have 80 years of of the house of David in the beginning, around the year 1000 AD, right, in, in plus or minus around that time. Yeah, the, the and, center of David's reign, if you wanted to take the average of that, is probably right 1000 AD. Yes, right. I'm, I'm giving you probably yeah. approximate numbers that people can remember. I'm not trying to be, you know, chronologically wonderful, because we don't know the exact date sometimes. Uh, translating it into our ADs and BCs and all that, but it's about a thousand, just so you get an idea of what about it was. About a thousand BC. A thousand BC. I think I'm saying BC instead of probably saying AD, <laughs> thinking I'm saying BC. But anyway, about a thousand BC, and then the kingdom split after Solomon's death, which was about the year 931, 930. Uh, the kingdom split. And you had the northern kingdom, which was then also called Israel, and the southern kingdom called Judah. David's line continued in the southern kingdom after his son Rehoboam, or Solomon's son Rehoboam, uh, and his descendants. And they, they continued on until the Babylonian captivity uh, around 600 A.D. I'm going to give you very approximate numbers here, 586, 600, 605 in that range. They continued to kings then, but the northern kingdom never was of the house of David under Jeroboam and his descendants were not of the house of David. And they only lasted till 722 when the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And that's what's often called the, the 10 lost tribes. They weren't really lost. They were just they never they never came back from that captivity as tribal units. The people came back. Many of the individuals came back from various tribes. We have record of that in the Bible. Even in the time of Christ, there was Anna in the temple of the house of Asher and so forth. But they didn't come back as tribes, as, as entities. But the southern kingdom, Judah, they came back from the captivity as a tribal entity, as well as individuals, to continue that tribe of Judah until Christ came. So we're getting far field, but that's the house of David. And the Bible says that uh, in that um, Jeconiah, the time of the Babylonian captivity, was the last king on earth of the house of David, and that he would not have any more descendants on earth. No man would prosper sitting in the Jerusalem of the house of David, ruling on earth, Jeremiah 20, 23. But then Christ came, and he was a descendant of David, the king, of, and of Jeconiah, Matthew 1. But he sits as the king in the line of David, but not in Jerusalem. He sits in heaven on God's right hand. 
of the throne of David. And that's what Peter says on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts chapter 2. After Christ's resurrection and ascension, Peter says the fulfillment of all these things is that David, Christ is now seated on David's throne uh, at the right hand of God. And that's the fulfillment of the prophecies about the, the house of David. It's found in Acts 2 and in Christ. You're going to say more about this, Gary. I'm rambling on here. Well, basically, uh, some of the southern, some of the what we call the southern kings, like Josiah, maybe even Hezekiah, uh, did some things up in the northern area after it had been destroyed by Assyria, and may have it from time to time reclaimed part of that territory, but we don't have real definitive records of that. Yeah, but they they never established any of the northern tribes again. No, as tribal units, that they may have expanded their kingdoms into that area yeah. i agree they with control about that. With those, they, they control, control some of that area yeah uh but they never really no 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 tribal units were ever reestablished after <clears throat> after the assyrians took away the northern tribes in 722 uh so now the other question that you have um the other question that jerry asked well, the use of the house oh, of david in in lot in isaiah even in jeremiah and zechariah are referring to Jesus, referring to the Christ, uh, when he talks about, uh, there are a lot of prophecies there that involve the Christ and use the term house of David, indicating that that's going to go on in Christ, not in any of these earthly kings, I think. that's what Yes, I think that that's correct. Um, that he, he is the, uh, the descendant of David that takes the throne. There's yeah, not and, not any other and not anyone coming. In yeah. fact, it'd be very difficult to prove you're a descendant of David today if you're a Jew. Uh, com- be very difficult to prove because the temple records were destroyed in AD 7. There's no way to prove whose tribe they were from. Well, an example one of this is Isaiah 22. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses. It says, uh, I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit to your responsibility your responsibility into his hand. He shall be the father and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, the key of the house of David will I lay on his shoulders. So he shall open and no one shall shut and he shall shut and no one shall open. These, these are references to Christ. Right. In, in, in that you, and it's used in, in the term house of David referring to Jesus's lineage and David being in that lineage. Um, the other question it came up, and we can go back to some of that that I want to take on before we take on the story of Goliath. I take, kind of take them out of order for what they were asked, but was the Star of David as such? Now, the Star of David symbol, which is really two overlapping equilateral triangles, six-sided star, hexa, hexagram, I think they call it, six-sided equilateral figure in any event that that is not a biblical thing at all we have no indication from any bible sources or anything like that 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 is a bible symbol although it's recognized today as the symbol of judaism i think it's what the israeli flag is today the nation of of the of israel today the modern nation it really came into common usage among the jews in the 1800s, so it's way down down toward our time in the 1800s, and the Zionist movement, the movement to bring the Jews back to Palestine from the 1800s, kind of adapted that as their 
as their symbol, but it, it certainly wasn't considered a originally a Jewish symbol at all. And um, but it came into usage by the Jews. And so we, we, you do find it in some pretty old places. There's a stone bearing that symbol, apparently. In, in Galilee from the third and fourth century A.D., three or four hundred years after Christ, and so forth. So, is, is there the, any connection with the Jews at that point? Well, it's found in, found in a synagogue, but as far as whether it was a widespread use, um, I, 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 had, I don't think it is. Now we got a, I just got a text message. I guess. Uh, well, I, I was going to say that, you know, these symbols that are used later are sometimes used for other things, even centuries beforehand. The swastika that uh, Hitler adopted for Germany was uh, a slight modification of virtually the same thing with the, everything twisted the other way that, that American Indians used before, you know, before the Europeans came to America. Right. They they found those things. Uh, so well, well, it's kind of like the now. Please understand the analogy I'm making here, and don't make it more than what I'm saying. It's kind of like the modern symbol, the swastika, that we associate with Nazi Germany. The swastika as a symbol is a very ancient symbol. Yes. It goes way back before Christ and used by the Babylonians and Assyrian other people like that. And now in modern times, we associate that symbol with Nazism. I don't suppose it, I can't imagine what part of history will not associate with Nazism from now on, because that was a very common usage, but it was in use before Hitler came along and there, you can look, go look up the reasons why he used it. So uh, uh, I'm not defending the use of the swastika or anything like that. I'm simply pointing out historical fact. And the same the thing is true of the Star the of David. Of, the history of its, the history of its configuration, if you will, uh, it's it goes back, uh, like and it goes back even to the American Indian. Right. Um, John text in the Minerta steel in Egypt. And I looked up a little bit about this. Um, I, I read about it, but I'm not real familiar with it. Um, is, is mentions Israel, who was a pharaoh in ancient Egypt, about 1200 B.C. Um, it's in the Cairo Museum, mentions Israel. And so there was obviously a line of kings or a nation of Israel in 1200 B.C., which is before David. <coughs> Mentioned by a pharaoh there. Yes. Yeah, that would be um, during the period of the judges. Yes, that's called. Well, that's back in what we would call the Iron Age, back in probably the period of the judges. Yes. Um, so you know there are a ancient references to Egypt. I don't think the Minerva steel has a Star of David on it, which is what I originally thought <clears throat> that that John Texture was saying. But I don't think that's right. But now there are some. Um, there are. Examples of the use of this hexagram in Jewish <coughs> sources that go back pretty far, about to year 1000 and so forth. And so, but but I don't. But I'm just saying it's not an ancient symbol as far as Israel is concerned. It wasn't the symbol of Israel in Bible times, as far as I can determine anything I've read. Nor is it 
uh, a Bible symbol of Israel, any more so than the cross is an is a Bible symbol of Christianity or the shepherd's crook or the lamb. Those are all figures people began to use several hundred years after Christ was here for Christianity. But those symbols are not symbols in the Bible for Christianity. The cross, you know, where, I hate to say this to people, but wearing a cross around your neck in one way. Now, once again, please understand the analogy I'm making. Wearing a cross around your neck today is about like wearing a, a noose or an electric chair. I guess today they have to wear a hypodermic needle for the lethal injection. It's wearing a sign of, a, of execution around your neck. It, they certainly wouldn't be doing this in Bible times. It was a symbol of the most gr uh, grotesque and shameful kind of execution. And they weren't getting tattooed with these symbols back then and so forth and so on. Not for centuries and centuries when people began to stylize these images for usage in jewelry and things like that. It's a fairly modern, that's a fairly modern thing. Now, they did use some symbols, apparently, this fish symbol, two or three hundred years after Christ, perhaps. We have some evidence that they were using this ichthus symbol, which is the symbol of a fish. Ichthus is the Greek word for fish. Yeah, so when you take the acronym... The, the the implications of it, of, of what they, some of the things I've read that they used it for were um, basically for identification among themselves during the period that Rome was persecuted. Right, they might put a shepherd's, a shepherd's staff symbol on some doorway or some cave that would tell people that the Christians might be there at some time, or they might use the... Uh, the fish, ichthus, is the, the letters of ichthus, I-C-H-T-U-U-S in, in our English, are the first letters of the sentence in Greek, Yesu Christo Vios Theos, Jesus Christ, Son of God. Okay, so it's an anagram, ichthus became an anagram for the statement, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so they would use this symbol. And so apparently, if you've ever seen one of these on the back of a car or something, one person with a stick on the ground in a conversation might do the first arc, might do one side of that symbol and just kind of stand there like you're doodling on the ground. The other person, if they were a Christian, might take his staff and make the other and complete the fish on the other side. This is how I've heard this explained, Gary. So it was a way for them to encode, carefully signal to the other person that they're a Christian, ask, are you a Christian, without verbalizing that. And this seems to be centered around... I have no idea if that happened that way or not, but that's what I've read. Well, the logic, was, I think, was it was done during the period that the Roman Empire was persecuting Christians. Yes, and, and that's right. So there was, there was the element of kind of hiding it, that kind of thing. So, yes... John Text said the cross was a very late symbol, and that's correct. Uh, the cross that we use today is a very late symbol, and and I, I just I don't put much confidence or stock in these symbols because the Bible doesn't give me no indication whatsoever that these kinds of symbols mean anything. In fact, you know I'm more against them in my own personal way because of the Bible's warnings about not making graven images in the Old Testament of things in heaven and things on the earth and 
and humans and stars and all that kind of thing. The Bible warns about these. In fact, that's one reason, Gary, we don't have a lot of archaeological things from Israel of the kind that we might expect because they didn't build these kinds of ornate uh, statues like you find in Egypt and Babylon. They, they did not build these things because of the commandment not to build graven images. The altars that we have, the altars that God commanded them to build generally were just piles of piles of stones. In fact, the, the word for peace in Hebrew means uh, uncut or whole, means unhewn. The stones that they were to use were unhewn or uncut stones. They weren't allowed to chisel them out all nice and straight like the pagans did and make a beautiful, ornate thing. The only thing they did there was they built a temple that way. Uh, and there were some symbols on the temple, like pomegranates and other things like that. But the, the rest of the time, that, that they, weren't, they weren't allowed to do it, and they didn't do it. So we don't have, if, they found, if you found an ancient altar of Abraham, even he, though he wasn't a Jew, it'd just be a pile of rocks today. So what, how do you know what it is? Well, it's a pile of rocks. You know, all these other altars that they built, if they built them, were, were piles of rocks. Well, I'd only say one thing about the cross as a symbol is Jesus uses it symbolically. He uses it several times, Matthew 16, Matthew 8, Mark 10, Luke 9. He says, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, that's a metaphorical that use. use. I wouldn't yeah. call it a symbolic use. It's a metaphorical use. But so, but that does kind of connect it to him. I don't think he's. I don't think he's saying there. Take up. Go, go get your step. Go down go to the pawn get, shop and get yourself a cross, uh, a, a jewelry, and hang it about your neck. He's, basically, uh, he's not saying anything like that saying, whatsoever. He's saying, follow me. In the, in the cross that. was a metaphorical symbol of a shameful form of death. That's what he's saying. You're going to have to die to me if you're going to be my disciple. Yeah. He's not talking about wearing jewelry or making an ornate symbol that you carry around at Easter uh, and so forth, um, which is where we've got it. But so, if you're interested in looking at the context of that, it's... Uh, it's Matthew 16:24. It's Mark 8:34 and Mark 10:21 and Luke 9:23. Yes. If you if you want to look those up. Now, if you want if you want to wear cross jewelry, I suppose you have the the right to do that. But um, I don't, and the reason I don't is because I don't believe in graven images. So uh, I, I'm so crazy, Gary. That you don't if you come and if you come to the church here, if you, I hope you would come sometime, some of you. But if you did come and we do a, we do I do PowerPoint presentations up here and uh, we have a nice big TV screen where you can read the scriptures we're using. You can see what they are for yourself. Uh, you you won't find me putting cross symbols or pictures of Jesus up there. Not going to do that because I personally don't believe in in graven images. But but that's just, that's me. I mean I understand other people can have some freedom in that in that regard but um i'm careful about that because i think it can sometimes pull people away from the spiritual truth to focus on a material object we're human we focus on material objects um, that we have and so we 
carry these little, my grandmother carried around these little wooden crosses with her. She was a Roman, devout Roman Catholic, and she'd rub them, you know. And so we start rubbing our lucky charms that we carry in our pocket. Or your rabbit's you know, foot. Rabbit's foot. Well, that's just a pagan symbol of a, a lucky charm. You can have a Christian symbol the same way, a little cross you carry. Or if you go to Israel, like we did, you'll find in some of these places, gift sh- that every museum, every exhibit that you go to, you go in one entrance, and I've told you before, they always exit you out through the gift shop. <laughs> That's how that works. <laughs> and our guide explained this. Yes, before we we're going to go in this way, and it looked like a, it's going to be a museum, a nice display. You'll see all these things. You'll see what you came for, whether it's a tomb or whatever it may be. But you're going to go through the gift shop on the way out. But make sure you come back to the bus real quickly because we're going to leave. You spend a few minutes anyway. Um, <laughs> that's how that works. But anyway, uh, what I started to tell you was in the in the gift shops, they, a couple of them especially they had olive uh, olive wood symbols, hearts, crosses, little pictures of Jesus on the cross, you know, little gray engraving things, and they're very nice. Most a lot of them are something hang on the wall. A lot of them go in your pocket to carry around. So we bought some like hearts that made out of olive wood from Israel for our grandkids, you know, that kind of stuff. And and there's nothing wrong with all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. John Texan, just like Disney, every ride exits through a gift shop, and, and that's of course is uh, that's just good business practice. And anyway, well, I'm going to say something kind of uh, not good, I suppose. But in, anyway, um, that <laughs> and some of you are begging me to say what I just was thinking, but I'm not going to. But anyway, um, that uh, that's that's how it works. But, you know, the church and religion are not about business and lucky charms and rabbit's feet and rubbing crosses, holy water. All those kinds of things are not a Christianity. They're forms of a more juvenile Christianity, perhaps. But they aren't found in the Bible, and what we're going to try to do on this show is point you to the text of the Bible for to get your religious information, to get your practice. If you, um, to be fair about this, you, I don't have to go very far to find out what people think. You can go read what Catholic bishops and writers say about their use of these images and these crosses and these things they make people carry around. I mean, the cross I have from my grandmother, one of the small little wooden crosses, was in a leather pouch. It was well-worn. It came a little brochure. This cross was said that if you if you prayed before you prayed before this cross, certain prayers, it would grant you so many years' indulgence out of purgatory by praying to this cross. By carrying this cross and by touching this cross every day, you'd be given so many years' indulgence out of purgatory. Now, that's pretty close, Gary, to idolatry. It's it's so close, I would have a hard time separating the two. But if you talk to a Catholic bishop about that, or someone who writes about it, like in the question box, these other things, you go to their website, they will say that this is just the way we teach our children. It's for people who are immature and they need visual representations of physical things and so like we teach our children we let them draw pictures of of jesus or david and goliath you know and and so we show them these pictures and so the pictures help people who are more spiritually immature to
to get the right idea in their mind. So if you want to use the cross, that's why I said it's kind of a, a juvenile Christianity. Uh, this is what they say. So the priesthood thinks. So don't that, don't think that I'm making that. I'm just insulting you. So the priesthood thinks that most of the Christians that they're trying to teach are childlike. Well, they would. That's their justification for it, that it helps people who are immature spiritually to grasp spiritual ideas. And so you you grab onto. Now there's other psychological explanations as to why people. Um, do things. I, I'm missing something today in my pocket. I usually carry one of these little, um, called a Leatherman Micra, a little small stainless steel knife and scissors and tweezers. It's all in one little unit. You know, it's, it's about an inch and a half long, maybe two inches long and folds up. I have one of those in my pocket for years. I've carried one of those in my pocket. And I sit there when I'm talking to somebody or even when I'm preaching hand in my pocket and I'm rolling that thing around playing with it. It's got two little things that you can it kind of like are loose. And so they push back and forth. I'm playing with this thing in my pocket. So there's, I don't, I don't know what the psychological name for that is. They, they, and somebody made a fortune off fidget spinners a few years ago. People that know me, all of them bought me a different, a different kind of, I got to buy about half a dozen fidget spinners at home people thought well you you do this kind of stuff you're nervous all the time well is that what our religion is it's just a, a stress relief that we rub on we, we rub on an image of an of a hangman's noose or a lethal injection syringe you know or or, or electric chair carry a little carry a little pewter image of an electric chair around your neck and we rub on that when we get nervous it's, i i don't know well, I think it may be for some. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I think it may be that some to to them religion is that. Uh, if you have to have the image, an image that you can look at so you can worship God, the Bible is very clear on more than one occasion. He asked Moses, what did you see in the mountain when you saw me? You did not see anything in the mountain. And yet I was there and you know I was there. He's very clear about that with Moses. Don't make images because God is not an image that you can put on an image. And I don't think when Christ came, he meant, well, we're going to change that now. Now, now you can make images of Christ. For we do not know what he looked like. And all this debate about whether Christ was black or white or whatever color he was is uh, biblical foolishness. We know he was a Jew. So, so whatever Jews looked like in the first century, that's probably what Christ looked like, because the Bible even tells you he was an ordinary-looking person. There was nothing in him that we should desire. He wasn't even a particularly striking individual, apparently, physically. Apparently not handsome. Not, not, not something that was striking anyway, uh, and that's the point. Uh, God, so why would God then want us all to make images of this? Now, we're way far afield from the original question here, which was about the Star of David. But there's no Bible evidence or record of this Star of David being a symbol of Israel in ancient times. It's a modern symbol, relatively speaking. And um, once again, it's, a, it's just a symbol. It's been used by other, other groups, other civilizations down through time. Uh, people consider, and I imagine there's first graders that kind of don't even know, and they make the Star of the Hexagram. You know, who, who didn't love a spirograph when you were a kid? You can make hexagrams of that all day long. I, I love those things. But and so but that 
that's not where our faith is, and, and it's something we should probably be getting away from and not pulling to that kind of thing. Um, in any event, the other question, Gary, unless you want to pursue that more, was David and Goliath. Um, so um, well, that's just a story about our historical account basically of David's battle with a particular person who was of great statue and how he overcame them. And now there are a few mentions of like the sword of Goliath. And later on, there's a mention of some, some man who killed Goliath's brother. Uh, There were quite, there were a few of these giants, a group of giants in that area. So these are just, again, if the value here is not in, Goliath so much as in the statue of da- stature of David was a small apparently a small man. David didn't have a, was no, not a large and strong. No, no. So what's the lesson here? The conflict with David is David had faith in God, and basically in this case, I believe God delivered Goliath into David's hand because he had faith. And what what's going on is the contrast of David's faith. To Saul's lack of faith. Yes. That, that basically Israel had been told if they would have faith in God, God would deliver them from the kings and from the peoples around them. And if they didn't have faith, basically he, they wouldn't be delivered. And so we see that going back and forth through the history of Israel throughout the whole Old Testament. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. All these things occur, but they're lessons in faith. They're not. They're not so much uh, centered around, I think, making examples of characters like Goliath. Right. It's it's a comparison. This uh, the story is in First Samuel chapter seventeen. I, I don't yeah. think we'll take the time to read the whole chapter. It's a very great thing to read. And what Gary is saying is, is I think, the main part of the story, that here was the king of Israel, Saul, who the Bible specifically says was a head taller than anybody else around. And one of the reasons they picked him, because he was a big, tall man, stood over top of everybody. And we all know that human nature is we tend to gravitate toward large leaders. Almost every American president that's been elected, uh, well, almost every in among the candidates that are elected president, the taller of the two has won all but one or two times in American history. Um, that's why they had Michael Dukakis standing up on a little platform when he gave a talk because uh, against George Bush, because he was much shorter than Bush, didn't work very well. But but that's the idea. Stephen Douglas was much shorter than Abraham Lincoln. Now, we'd like to think it was all just their ideas and probably mostly it was. But height makes a difference. So they picked Saul, this big man. Well, then when it comes to this battle against this great giant, here comes their two armies camped on two opposite hillsides, and here comes this great giant down to the middle saying, come and get me. Whoever, you know, bring your best man on here. Uh, we'll settle this right now. Whoever whoever wins between the two of us, that'll be the victor of the battle and more or less save a lot of bloodshed. Well, Saul and his crew were sitting up there uh, too cowardly to go after Goliath and David, who was happened to be visiting the camp, his brothers were there as soldiers. And he was a he teenager, was, seventeen years old, probably something like that. And and he was not a large man from, no. from all the descriptions. He says, Who is this man who thinks he can defy the armies of the living God? 
Those are the exact words. Who can defy the armies of the living God? Let's go after him. So David said he'd go. Well, he even go. They even they take him to Saul. Saul looked at this little man. He tries to put on Saul's armor. It wouldn't fit him. It just drooped all over him. Too he heavy. Couldn't for him. He hardly walk. With couldn't him. walk with Saul's armor. I have a sermon on this. You got to wear your own armor in the battle. You know, um, whatever you are, you got to wear. You can't. Some, nobody else can get you to heaven and, and fight your spiritual batters, battles for you. And so David took his sling, which he knew. God, he said, well, God delivered me out of the hand of a bear and a lion with my sling. I'll, I'll go fight this man. So they did. He did. And he killed Goliath. And uh, Israel won that day. And because of that, David became an instant hero in Israel. Not the king, but David. Now, this this. Uh, this is the story of Goliath, and as Gary says, I think that the real part, real point of this is the the real point of this spiritual is not, is part. Not Goliath. No. The real point of this is is faith in God. But David. David ends up with the sword of Goliath, by the way, which is a huge sword. He cut off his head with it. But, but uh, there's lots of spiritual application be made of this story of David and Goliath. It starts David on his road to becoming the king of Israel. And um, I think the main point that we should get of it's the one that Gary's making is that as Christians, we have to have actual faith in God that in spite of how things look, Christ will not be defeated. God's people will not be ultimately defeated. We may lose some battles. We may be down, but we will not ultimately be defeated. God will triumph. And he always uses, or always, most always in the Bible, God uses the weak, the beggarly, um, that kind of thing to, to, um, to win the victory. He consistently uses men who have flaws. He consistently uses armies that are smaller than the armies of the enemies of Israel consistently does that um, because he's the one who is uh, he's the one who is to be honored in Deuteronomy it's, seven, Gary. Well, I was. I'm, oh, I'm, go ahead and say this. I don't uh, First Corinthians one and verse twenty-seven. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world put the same things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are God just basically chooses what you don't expect right people and situations that you don't expect and he he can accomplish his will suddenly and things can change suddenly under our feet when he moves he says this to Israel in Deuteronomy 7. See, the, the Jews today, oftentimes, especially the secular Jews, they think that God has made Israel a special people because they're so smart. And they point to men like Albert Einstein or Jonas Salk or whoever it may be. They think they're so smart and they're so great. And so he's chosen that. And they think the people of Israel are the Messiah, the actual Jewish people are the Messiah. Here's what he says about them in Deuteronomy 7, God does initially. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. That means set apart for me. You are my special people. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people 
for himself a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. That's Deuteronomy 7, 6. Now listen, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you are more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, that's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from a house from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And so he says he's going to keep his covenant with them for a thousand generations to those who love and keep his commandments. And he will repay those who hate him to their face to destroy them. And so forth. So he says, you keep the commandments, meaning I'll destroy you, too. So he says here very clearly to the Jews early in their history in Deuteronomy, I didn't pick you because you're so great. I picked you because you're you're measly and small and weak. That's why I set my love on you. Have faith in me. Yeah. Yes. Have faith in me and do what I say and I will bless you and no one will be able to stop you. If you don't, I'll destroy you like I destroy the rest of them. Which and, and, he had to do. And I like I like the analogy. What what Peter says in First Peter two, beginning verse nine, talking about Christians now, the same thing. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim exactly. the prize, praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy so he so he has then said that the christians and that's who peter's talking about are the fulfillment right. of, of this prophecies about the special love he had for israel his people and he says here in this verse that those who who follow jehovah will be blessed those who don't will be cursed and i think he's saying that includes you and so that's what happened to them you know, I was going to mention uh, about the, about Goliath, kind of going backwards a little bit. Um, from the, if if a if a cubit is about 18 inches, which on my arm my arm I'm an average sized man according to the encyclopedia, uh, is about from the elbow to the tip of my fingers is about 18 inches, almost exactly, which is probably close to the measurement that we're talking about for a cubit. There are different cubits in the Bible, I, I know. So this is an average. So if you if you use that measurement, Goliath was about nine feet tall, a little over nine feet tall, maybe nine three, nine four, with a span. He's nine cubits and a span, or something like that, or uh, six cubits and a span. I forgot what the measurement was now. Um, the so he's over nine feet tall, and then it gives not just a tall skinny bean pole, like we see a few people that are that tall. But he it gives the measurements and the weight of his armor and his spear, and they are far beyond what an average man can carry around or use in battle. And um, when you start figuring, and, and that's the reason why it mentions those things. Not only was he tall, but he was a big man. And I've seen a few of these big people like that, basketball players. It's not just that they're as tall as a doorway. They won't fit through the doorway without turning sideways. Some of them won't. Because they're so broad-shouldered and big, you know. And so now that's the kind of man that Goliath was, and David went up against him. And uh, your son, uh, Gary's son, James, who's also an engineer, some years ago we had a vacation Bible school here, and uh, we studied this story and some others. He he made a life-size Goliath, 
statue out there and put it out in the parking lot for the kids to see. And then they then they, I think he made them slings. And they all got to take their turns trying to hit the giant with a sling with a sling <laughs> a slingshot, you know, Boy, they had a good time doing that. But to see how impressive that size of that man was, that statue was, was was really something. And and of course, there's been we have skeletons like that. Uh, this is not a miracle that a man was that big. It's not a made-up story. There was a race of people in that area, and we have evidence of them, the Anakim and others, and that seem to uh, be very big. And there's people like that today that are quite that big. Usually people that big, Gary, today have physical ailments, glandular problems, other difficulties. And they don't they don't live very long, and they're not great physical specimens. But there are a few that are exceptions to that. Yeah, in 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 your favorite movie. Oh yes, the uh, Princess Bride. Andre the Giant. Yes, yes, uh, yes uh, Princess Bride. Yes. Uh, oh well, we don't want to get off on the Princess Bride, do we? Let's don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> I do not think that means what you think it means. Right. In, anyway, uh, but that's a great question, and. Um, it points at all these things point us back to the real purpose. So I, I think you can present the story of David and Goliath as a children's story, but I want to encourage all the adults listening this morning to the show. Um, go read that for yourself in first Samuel 17. It is a, it is a very inspiring and challenging account and tells you something about this man, David, as well as the, as well as Saul, and you begin to see Saul begin. Saul begins to unravel at that point. His lack of faith at that point is a turning point in his life. Well, and from there, his faith disintegrates until he's talking to a witch in Endor. You know, his lack of faith and his and the what I'll say the progression of his pride. Those two things combined to be the total undoing. Of Saul. And very very often, those two things are very closely related, aren't they? Yes. Uh, and and so uh, we see this in people. It isn't that he was predestined and born to become what he was. You see Saul changing over time. And every time he refused to exercise faith in Jehovah, he, he became weaker and he became more dependent on his pride, his own self-will to get him through. And it became worse. And it became more, all the way. He through. became more estranged from God as he went along. And, uh, and, and he basically, too. you can see, he began to pick up not only pride, he began to pick up envy. All of those things kept combining exactly. uh, to go on. And so, you know, the lesson that's involved in David and Saul, and and the comparison of the two characters, is is a tremendous lesson for any Christian. Yes. Of things, the things that you need to observe. Uh, I keep coming back to the thing, and I don't, I don't have the passages right here. Paul, Paul tells us in in his letters that we need to examine ourselves uh, to see if we are in the faith. Uh, he also tells us to examine ourselves, to look at our work. Okay. He, he didn't say just step back and think about what you've done. He says, look at actually what you did. Look at your work. Look at what the effect you had is. Look at how it turned out. And basically, I think that's one of the easier ways to do a honest self-examination. It's, it's hard to sit back and just think without your pride getting involved in it and 
doing a lot of self-justification for doing what we do. That self-examination is an important thing, Mike. Yes. Uh, it's it's something we don't teach much, and we don't teach how to do it. And there are some there are some uh, interesting lessons involved. Let me see if I can find that passage. Which one are you looking for? Uh, I, I'm sorry. It's talking. Paul talks about examining yourself, and there, there are two of them that I'm thinking of. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. faith and examine yourself. Let each one uh, evaluate his own work. No, that's um, oh, now that you said it. That's First Corinthians chapter chapter three, I believe. Um, I, don't, I don't have them right here. In front uh, of me. I, I I don't know why I'm having trouble. I had them right in the, when you said it the first time. And then I thought, well, maybe I didn't hear it correctly. Uh, I was right in my on the tip of my tongue there. Uh, Paul's t- of course, Paul tells you to examine yourself whether you've taken the Lord's Supper right correctly. In Second Corinthians thirteen five, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Test yourselves. And so forth. That's second. Uh, yeah. And, and then and then Galatians six four says, but let each one examine his own work. work his own then work. he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not right. in and others. Think, that's we, Galatians six four. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking about. He says, examine your own work. It, it's it's easier to look back and see what you've done, I think, more honestly, and the effect that it's it has than it is to. Well, I did. I intended to do it this way, but it didn't have that work out. He, he, you see a lot more of yourself in examining your work, I think. That, and I don't think Paul used that word lightly. I think that's there for a reason. Right. Well, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about a little bit about uh, David in my sermon this morning. And I think that one, of the, one of David's great qualities is that he was able to look at himself clearly at times. We we all we think of this incident with Bathsheba, and, and that's true. But even in the case with Bathsheba, he he did uh, examine himself properly in the end and humble himself. He yeah, well, the first word out of his mouth it. when he was confronted with it was, "I have sinned." I've sinned. Yes, he 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 didn't he didn't have to respond the way he did when Nathan confronted him with that story. He could have had Nathan put to death. For bringing it up, you know, he responded properly. And then in the case where they moved the ark and Uzzah was killed because he moved the ark improperly, he was very anguished and upset, angry, I think, with the Lord. But then he went back and read what the words of the law were, and he said, we've done this cor- incorrectly. He examined himself. He, If you read the text there, he basically went back and thought about why did this happen? And well, what did he do? He examined his work. He examined, he examined what, he did. what he did and then compared to what God has said to do. And he said, we need to do it differently. We need to change. And then in the case where he was going to kill Nabal for Nabal being such a well, the, the Greek word is jerk, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, there he was going to kill Nabal and his men. Abigail, his uh, Nabal's wife, comes to David and appeals to him in his better nature and says, don't do this. You, you'll re- live to regret this, even though you're justified. You're justified in doing it. Don't do it. It'll haunt you the rest of your life if you kill these men. Uh, he stopped and said, you know, basically, you've saved me from doing something really stupid. 
And he ended up marrying her in the long run after Nabal did yeah, die. As a matter of fact, but, God took care of it instead of David. Yes, he didn't have to kill him, but but he he had the he had the character to stop and listen to what's being said, examine. Okay, what am I doing here? He could have reacted differently to any of those situations, but he was a man after God's own heart. He, he did. He was able, as you say, to examine himself and stop short. Of of uh, violating God's law and doing, but and, and he was able to improve. Uh, this passage in Galatians six, the verse before that one says, "If anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself." Well, see, that's so we one, think we're something when we really aren't. Well, see, that's one of the things that pride does. It mm-hmm. deceives you. Pride pride deceives you as to what you are. Pride deceives you as to what you can do or what you should do in a situation. Uh, pride is very deceptive, and that's one of the reasons why it's so dangerous. I believe. Uh, this is the no. This is the big problem with um, the the ideology, postmodern ideology, what we would call wokeism, on in the way it presents itself, and the latest iteration, all this transsexual and even homosexual ideology. And the reason Disney's involved in it. Is because of their constant preaching for a generation or two that you can be whatever you want to be, right? You can just do whatever you want. You can be whatever you want. Well, that's true in one limited sense. You know, you can go beyond where you think you can. You can grow. Man can accomplish great things and all that. But you can't be whatever you want to be. You go into the exhibits in Disney where I objected to this for 30-some years uh, at Epcot. You know, if you if you can dream it, you can do it. That simply is a lie. Okay, it's a it's a human secular lie that if man can dream something, he can do it. There are limits to God's creation and to His reality. Now we don't have to be shackled by our by so many things. We can rise beyond it, but we can't do anything. And this is the problem of pride. Pride tells you that since I want to be a woman, if I'm born a man, I can be a woman. Pride says nobody can, and nobody can tell me anything different than that. And so we end up with this great disaster in people's lives. It eventually causes great harm and disaster. It isn't a matter of hate. It's a matter of preventing people from doing irreparable harm to themselves and others by by that kind of prideful thinking. And you see it on the part of people who do not believe in God in the limitations of human nature. They believe they can do whatever they want. I got an article called on transhumanism, Gary. That's what transhumanism is about. Well, we've only we got, got a, about a minute left. Yeah, Summarize I, real quick. I, I just wanted go to say about way. Galatians 6, 3 and 4, very profound verses. He says, for if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Basically, that... Verse 3 is the definition of pride. Verse 4 is a hint to how to find it and get rid of it. Yes, very good. Thank you so much, and I, I think you're right about that. Let's uh, let's wrap up today. We're certainly glad that you've tuned into the show. Take a look at our website, which is wearejustchristians.com. Wearejustchristians.com. Be glad to have you come visit us also, 2196 Southwest Savannah Boulevard here in Port St. Lucie at 10, 11, and 7.30 on Wednesday night. Thanks for listening. May God bless you and tune in again next week.
You've been listening to We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie on WPSL Port St. Lucie.